0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, The Language of Religion, Part 1. I have been asked to talk about religious language, and the gist of what I have to say is that, in my opinion, there is no specifically religious language. I admit, of course, that some things said by religious people can't be treated exactly as we treat scientific statements, but I don't think that is because they are specimens of some special language. It would be truer to say that the scientific statements are in a special language. The language of religion, which we may presently have to distinguish from that of theology, seems to me to be, on the whole, either the same sort we use in ordinary conversation or the same sort we use in poetry, or somewhere between the two. In order to make this clearer, I am afraid I must turn away from the professed subject of my paper for some time and talk about language. I begin with three sentences. 1. It was very cold. 2. There were 13 degrees of frost. 3. Ah, bitter chill it was. The owl for all his feathers was a cold. The hare limped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numbed were the beadsman's fingers. I should describe the first as ordinary language, the second as scientific language, and the third as poetic language. Of course, there is no question here of different languages in the sense in which Latin and Chinese are different languages. Two and three are improved uses of the same language used in one. Scientific and poetic language are two different artificial perfections of ordinary. Artificial, because they depend on skills. Different, because they improve ordinary in two different directions. Notice also that ordinary could advance a little towards either, so that you could pass by degrees into scientific or poetic. For, very cold... You could substitute freezing hard, and for freezing hard, freezing harder than last night. That would be getting nearer to the scientific. On the other hand, you could say bitterly cold, and then you would be getting nearer the poetic. In fact, you would have anticipated one of the terms used in Keats's description. The superiority of the scientific description clearly consists in giving for the coldness of the night a precise quantitative estimate which can be tested by an instrument. The test ends all disputes. If the statement survives the test, then various inferences can be drawn from it with certainty. For example, various effects on vegetable and animal life can be predicted. It is therefore of use in what Bacon calls operation we can take action on it. On the other hand, it does not, of itself, give us any information about the quality of a cold night. It does not tell us what we shall be feeling if we go out of doors. If, having lived all our lives in the tropics, we didn't know what a hard frost was like, the thermometer reading would not, of itself, inform us. Ordinary language would do that better. Your ears will ache. You'll lose the feeling in your fingers you'll feel as if your ears were coming off. If I could tell you, which unhappily I can't, the temperature of the coldest water I ever bathed in, it would convey the reality only to the few who had bathed in many temperatures and taken thermometer readings of them. When I tell you it was so cold that at first it felt like scalding hot water, I think you will get a better idea of it. And where a scientific statement could draw on no experience at all, like statements about optics made to a student born blind, then, though it might retain its proper virtues of precision, verifiability, and use in operation, it would in one sense convey nothing. Only in one sense, of course. The blind student could, presumably, draw inferences from it and use it to gain further knowledge. I now turn to the poetic. Its superiority to ordinary language is, I am afraid, a much more troublesome affair. I feel fairly sure what it does not consist in. It does not consist either in discharging or arousing more emotion. It may often do one of these things, or both, but I don't think that's its differentia. I don't think our bit of Keats differs from the ordinary, it was very cold, primarily or solely by getting off Keats's chest more dislike of cold nights, nor by arousing more dislike in me. There is, no doubt, some mere getting off the chest in the exclamation, ah, and the catachresis, bitter. Personally, I don't feel the emotion to be either Keats's or mine. It is for me the imagined people in the story who are saying, ah, and bitter not with the result of making me share their discomfort, but of making me imagine how very cold it was. And the rest is all taken up with pictures of what might have been observed on such a night. The invitation is not to my emotions, but to my senses. Keats seems to me to be simply conveying the quality of a cold night, and not imposing any emotions on me, except of course the emotion of pleasure at finding anything vividly conveyed to the imagination. He is in fact giving me all that concrete, qualitative information which the scientific statement leaves out. But then, of course, he is not verifiable, nor precise, nor of much use for operation. We must not, however, base our view on a single passage, which may have been unfairly chosen. Let us begin at quite another point. One of the most obvious differences between all the poetry I have ever read and all the straight prose—I say straight to exclude prose which verges on the poetic—is this simple one, hardly ever stated. The poetry contains a great many more adjectives. This is perfectly obvious. From Homer, who never omits to tell us that the ships were black and the sea salt, or even wet, down to Eliot with his hollow valley and multifoliate rose. They all do it. Poets are always telling us that grass is green, or thunder loud, or lips red. It is not, except in bad poets, always telling us that things are shocking or delightful. It does not, in that direct way, attempt to discharge or excite emotion. On the contrary, it seems anxious to bombard us with masses of factual information which we might, on a prose view, regard as irrelevant or platitudinous. Here pages 4 and 5 of the manuscript are missing. Page 6 begins as follows. In order to discharge an emotion, it is not necessary that we should make it clear to any audience. By expression, I mean that sort of utterance which will make clear to others how we are feeling. There are, of course, any number of intermediate stages between discharge and expression. But perfect expression in the presence of the perfect hearer would enable him to know exactly how you are feeling. To what extent this involves arousing the same emotion, or a replica of it in him. In other words, to what extent the perfect expression would be emotive, I don't know. But I think that to respond to expression is, in principle, different from having an emotion aroused in one, even though the arousing of some sort of phantom emotion may always be involved. There seems to me to be a difference between understanding another person's fear, because he has expressed it well, and being actually infected by his fear, as so often happens. Or again. There seems to be a difference between understanding the feelings of Shakespeare's Troilus before his assignation and being infected by similar feelings, as the writer of pornography intends to infect us. But the really important point is the third one. Even if poetic language often expresses emotion and thereby, to some undefined extent, arouses emotion, it does not follow that the expression of emotion is always its soul, or even its chief function. For even in ordinary language, one of the best ways of describing something is to tell what reactions it provoked in us. If a man says, they kept their rooms terribly overheated, before I'd been in there five minutes I was dripping. He is usually not concerned as an end in itself with giving us autobiographical fact that he perspired. He wants to make us realize how hot it was. And he takes the right way. Indeed, in a last resort, there is hardly any other way. To say that things were blue, or hard, or cool, or foul-smelling, or noisy, is to tell how they affected our senses. To say that someone is a bore, or a decent chap, or revolting, is to tell how we affected our emotions. In the same way... I think that poetic language often expresses emotion not for its own sake, but in order to inform us about the object which aroused the emotion. Certainly it seems to me to give us such information. Burns tells us that a woman is like a red, red rose, and Wordsworth that another woman is like a violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye. Now, of course, the one woman resembles a rose, and the other a half-hidden violet, not in size, weight, shape, color, anatomy, or intelligence, but by arousing emotions in some way analogous to those which the flowers would arouse. But then we know quite well what sort of women, and how different from each other, they must have been to do so. The two statements do not in the least reduce to mere expressions of admiration. They tell us what kind of admiration, and therefore what kind of woman. They are even, in their own proper way, verifiable or falsifiable. Having seen the two women we might say, I see what he meant in comparing her to a rose and I see what he meant in comparing her to a violet or might decide that the comparisons were bad. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, "'twill be in the valley of love and delight. "'When true simplicity is gained, "'to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. "'To turn, turn will be our delight, "'till by turning, turning, we come round right.'"